Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Now, as we come to the end of the year, the customary flow of economic predictions and outlooks, it's all in full swing. Many are looking for something to break in the economy. Yet the most obviously broken thing <laughs> is the economic outlook itself. 2022 outlooks, if you remember, were quickly dismantled by COVID and 2022 outlooks were shredded by Russia's war in Ukraine. If outlooks fail so often, how can you plan for the new year? Well, Pushan Dutt is joining us now. He's Professor of Economics and Political Sciences at INSEAD, and hopefully he can help us out, if only just a bit. Hi, Pushan. Hi. Happy New Year, Pushan. Thank you. Same to you. So we're going into the new year with a pretty gloomy outlook from most analysts and experts. What are you looking at? What are you reading into what we can expect in the new year? So it's very hard, as you know, to forecast what's going on in the new year. So we were sort of relatively optimistic at the beginning of this year. And I would argue that, you know, lots of things are in place which would actually make us relatively optimistic for the next year. So let me just list a few. So, you know, when Russia invaded... We all thought Ukraine would fall and, you know, the Russians would be marching into the Baltic states. But that did not happen, you know, and Ukraine took back vast swaths of territory. The Europeans who were fighting a lot, now they're unified, uh, you know, in in the face of the Russian invasion. We thought that, you know, Russia cutting off gas would hurt the Europeans a lot, but they seem to have put alternate supplies in place. Trump has, has started to fade. Many of his candidates lost in the midterm elections. The U.S. has gotten serious about climate change, even though the act is called the Inflation Reduction Act. It's actually about climate change. Central banks have gotten serious about eliminating inflation. They had sort of underestimated it, but now they've become a lot more hawkish. Mm. Uh, China is exiting its zero COVID policy. You know, it's going to be quite brutal, but, you know, their, their you know, tourism is recovering. Flights are resuming. Uh, Bolsonaro lost in Brazil, so the Trump of the tropics is gone, and of course Argentina won the World Cup. So, so pretty, <laughs> Got to mention good. the World Cup, no matter what. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, but here's the thing: based on what we know today, how do you expect China's reopening to unfold? What's in store for China's own growth and the impact on regional and global markets? Of course. So I was, I'm actually quite shocked with, in terms of how China pivoted from a zero COVID policy to just let it rip COVID policy. So what I had expected would be that there would be a slow and steady relaxation, something like what Singapore did, you know, you know, keep testing in place, keep, uh, you know, uh, reduce restrictions, but sort of gradually build up medical capacity, roll out booster shots, especially to the elderly. Instead, they just turned on a dime and, you know, forgot about COVID. Uh, it's very dif- difficult to think what is in store because we basically have no data on infections. There's little guidance for the citizens on what to do if they're diagnosed with COVID. Their hospitals and medical systems are being overwhelmed. Somehow it looks as if they are back uh, at the time of the initial outbreak in Wuhan in December 2019. But one thing is clear that they will not look back, that they're prioritizing livelihoods and economic growth over lives. So some of the bleakest estimates out there, which are which are prone to error because there's so little data coming out that, you know, in a COVID-19 population, almost a million people might die. 
So now, given that they're prioritizing livelihoods, this means that economic growth will resume because we won't get this stop-start kind of activity that happened under zero COVID. The supply chains will repair themselves and actually asset markets will start to recover. Of course, this will come at a steep human cost. So uh, overall, I still am a a little bit stunned how governments around the world keep making the same mistakes. They try to emulate what the U.S. did or what India did rather than trying to emulate what Singapore or Korea did. Mm, Which actually they should, right? I mean, at this point, I think a lot of people are looking back on examples they can emulate. But clearly, each country has decided on its own path. And considering what China has decided and what we've been hearing from, say, their economic work conference recently, what exactly do you think their plan really is? Surely they knew this would happen when they opened up and surely they have some safety nets or plans in place. So I think uh, there was a little bit of panic in the senior leadership team when when the protests about zero COVID started happening. Uh, So if you look at what the Central Economic Work Conference decided, they said that the singular focus is going to be economic growth. So then this pivot from zero COVID to sort of like, you know, full COVID is congruent with this goal. So the government is hoping that they'll go back to the high growth environment that China had before the pandemic. So the big engine of Chinese growth were basically the exports and the housing sector and, and heavy investments. Now, exports are going to slow down in the next year because of recession, oncoming recession in their advanced economies in the markets that China sells to. Uh, And uh, their housing sector also has become very bloated and policymakers are trying to sort of try to shrink it. So what are they going to do? They said that at this conference, they will prioritize domestic consumption as the growth engine. Uh, just Just to give some perspective, this is not new. China has been attempting to do this since 2007 when the Chinese premier actually said that China's economic model is uncoordinated, unsteady, imbalanced and unsustainable. But they face this difficult trade-off. As soon as they try to shift away from the heavy investment export-driven model and towards consumption, the growth rates actually will slow down. Okay, So therefore, uh, as soon as as it slows down, the politicians there, the leadership there becomes worried about about the population, about unrest, about social unrest. So then they actually go back to the same strategy, which is, you know, let's let's push for lower interest rates, let's give cheaper loans, uh, build more housing, uh, infrastructure. And today, housing, for instance, is 30% uh, of its GDP. This is real estate uh, activities. Mm. There were some positive things, though. They are, you know, opening up the services sector. They are saying that they will create a level playing field for foreign enterprises in government procurement, and they are uh, going to really push for these multilateral trading arrangements, like including the CPTPP. Speaking of multilateral, let's talk about China in relation to the U.S. What is your prediction about the geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S. and how those might pan out? So I think here also I'm cautiously optimistic. I think we will live in uh, a state of heightened but not escalating tension. And primarily the reason for this is distraction. So the U.S. will be very concerned with uh, recession. Uh, They are focused a lot on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Uh, China, uh, in the short term, will be very concerned about how to exit COVID and thinking of the new growth paradigm, which we just spoke about, which is more about consumption. But at the same time, there are a couple of additional forces which will come into play. So the Republicans in the House uh, in the U.S. will start launching investigations. It's going to be a bit of a clown show, but it will distract policymakers away from U.S.-China 
relationships. Uh, so, uh, and second, with the CHIPS Act in the U.S. and the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, what the U.S. has done is that the U.S. has actually threatened sanctions against its allies in Europe if they cooperate with China. So the Europeans have are quite upset about this. So the Europeans are rising in the defense of global trade rules. So we have this peculiar mix where Europe and China, who have started to distrust each other, but they're sort of united in their condemnation of the protectionist uh, stance of the U.S. So because of this, I think, pairing, I think the, the, the tensions, the geopolitical tensions will not rise rapidly. Let's talk about the Ukraine-Russia war. I've seen a lot of commentators write about the road to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, but not very many have been able to write about the road out of the Ukraine-Russia war. So this is, I think, one of the hardest questions to predict or to resolve. So I see there are two options here, but I don't know about the probabilities of these two options. So one is that the battle lines sort of freeze, just like it did with North Korea and South Korea. The Korean War, for instance, has never ended, even though it happened, you know, more than 40 years ago. So you, you can even think of China and Taiwan as a, as, a, as a freezing of battle lines. So this happens in many conflicts uh, recently, uh, that we get a line of control uh, and, you know, the, the, and a stalemate persists. So the Ukrainians might agree to something like this because they're exhausted. Putin agrees to it because it allows him to declare a limited victory because he's, you know, taken Crimea and, and some of the other provinces. Now, why does this happen? This happens when one of the parties is a nuclear power because then the incentives to, you know, not escalate become very, very powerful, whether it is from the parties in the conflict or the allies of these two parties. Uh, there is one problem with this scenario, though. You know, the world has actually tried this. Russia took Crimea in 2014 and they said, OK, let's freeze the lines there. And then, you know, think that will be the stalemate. But that was not the stalemate. OK, you know, the, the Russians went in into Ukraine. So frozen conflicts can get thawed. The second option which is the most dangerous option is that we can see escalation. So the Russians are getting pushed out of Ukrainian territory. So there are enormous incentives for them to escalate. OK, and given that how badly the Russian military has performed and how much territory the Ukrainians have captured, uh, Putin will be tempted to do this in order to claim victory. So he he's also he would be scared about his internal position. So a, re- a regime which is really fearful of its own destructions has enormous incentives to uh, escalate. So this is the scenario I think that the world needs to avoid. And NATO has to essentially signal that even if there's an escalation to like a nuclear uh, conflict, that they will continue to support Ukraine. And that China and India will play a big role in this, that they will... Uh, condemn Russia for this and that Ukraine has to signal that it will continue to fight even if, if Russia escalates. Against this backdrop, there's also talk of a global recession next year. To what extent do you think there could be some constructive measures that major economies can take in order to ensure that this won't be a super tough recession, to put it casually, or that you could avoid one altogether? So I think this is another big question. Will we have a recession and will it be mild or will it be severe? So I think that we will have a recession in the advanced economies, but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to be mild. Why is that? The first thing is that the inflation numbers are easing, especially in the U.S. So goods inflation has actually turned negative and service prices inflation has actually moderated. Uh, the inflation numbers are still above uh, the Fed's targets. So the Fed targets an inflation rate of 2%. Uh, 
So uh, even if, even though inflation rates are higher, you know, because they're easing, what does this mean? It means that they will no longer very aggressively raise rates. So instead of get, getting big raises, we'll get smaller raises and we'll see sort of like a tapering off of this. But keep in mind that this does not mean that we're going to return to the previous world. They've gotten rid of quantitative easing, which is basically money printing, mm. which means, and they're doing quantitative tightening, which means the era of cheap liquidity uh, and more or less funding available at zero interest rates, that is sort of over, which means asset prices are going to recover much more slowly uh, because they had been elevated by this quantitative easing. So our portfolios are going to take time to recover. So, and that will make us depressed. But I think the real economy, which is not the same as what's happening on Wall Street, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they are going to sort of start to diverge. So, so I think, uh, you know, oil prices are, are easing, the, the interest rates are sort of high, uh, but, uh, you know, even if there is a recession, this, there will be something which is called a, a soft landing rather than a hard landing. Amid all of this, how do you see Singapore doing in the year ahead? So Singapore will be Singapore because it's a, it's a small open economy with, uh, with an important export sector. You know, it, its fortunes are tied to how does China do, how does Europe do, and how does U.S. do. These are, you know, some of its largest trading partners. So the U.S. will probably have a quick, sharp, a short recession. Europe, of course, will struggle because, you know, they've always had a hard time figuring out fiscal policy, monetary policy. And China is going to focus on growth. So we should be able to see pretty good growth coming in these two big export markets and sort of, you know, less less so in, in Europe and in U.K., so in that case, you know, Singapore will, will sort of be fine. Singapore's monetary policy has also meant that the, the exchange rate has actually not moved a whole lot, uh, you know, because they sort of manage the exchange rate, which, is, which, is, which means that even though inflation is, is, is uh, heightened, it's sort of not gone completely out of control, like in countries in the Baltic states or, for instance, in Argentina, where it's running at 100%. So I think, you know, things will be tough, uh, you know, but uh, but I'm, again, cautiously optimistic that Singapore comes. Uh, the, the one thing that Singapore is really benefiting from mm. is, is entrepreneurs, capital and firms moving out of China and Hong Kong. So this has become a magnet for them, which means that uh, if you're in the market looking to rent an apartment, that's going to be really tough. Yep, prices are going up, astronomical, as some say. Uh, Thanks very much for your time today, Pushan. Really appreciate your outlook, even though we all acknowledge that something could happen to dismantle all of it, right? Exactly. (laughs) Happy New Year, nevertheless, Pushan. Pushan Dutt, Professor of Economics and Political Sciences at INSEAD. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.